Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hi everyone. I uh, hope you enjoy the first day of our conference. Uh, my name is Rafa Maya. I'm a first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan. And I'm so excited to present to you the last panel of the day. Uh, from NBA 75 to Basketball 100, the future of the game, with our panelists, uh, Sue Bird, uh, guard for the Seattle Storm. <laughs> Daryl Morey, president of basketball operations for the Philadelphia 76ers. Just keep going. <laughs> JJ Reddick, 15-year NBA veteran and co-founder of 342 Productions. <laughs> Mike Theron, Assistant General Manager for the Boston Celtics. Yeah, and our moderator, Tom Haberstroh from uh, Meadowlark Media. Nice. The panel is going to go for 55 minutes or so. We will take uh, questions from the audience using the hashtag Basketball100 that Tom will uh, choose. And with that, Tom, up to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rafa. Um, welcome to Basketball 100 panel. We're supposed to look into the future and tell everybody what it's going to look like in 25 years. So good luck with that. Nobody's keeping track of these predictions. Yes. <laughs> no, JJ's in the media game now. He has to be held accountable for his takes. All right. I keep all my receipts, to be clear. <laughs> I keep all my receipts. I'm never wrong. So I thought, like, as just a starting point, looking at what the NBA is now versus what it looked like 25 years ago and seeing what the biggest changes were and why that happened and maybe inform us on where we're going. Um, you had a big hand in this, Daryl. Three-pointers were uh, 17 per game in 1997, and now it's 35 per game, a jump of 110%. Question is, Daryl, how much do you take credit for that? And why did it take so long for that to happen? Imagine if JJ played in our era, how, how many threes he would have gotten. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, look, I, th I think it was a general trend um, for many years. And um, obviously, I came in, you know, thanks to Steve Pelucu, just walked off the stage with the, with the Celtics. And Mike, I think you were about six months after at the Celtics. Um, I think that there was a, quite a few coaches who got the power of the three-pointer, uh, the Houston Rockets with Rudy Tomjanovich, um, go back to Denver, Don Nelson. Um, but I think, I think it was around the early 2000s and Moneyball coming out that there was a systemic look at um, that this was a high-value play and it should grow and grow and grow. And then you have teams like the Spurs you know, understanding corner threes in Dallas, um, and just grew. And I'd actually be more interested in, in how that, you know, JJ sort of lived through this era. You know, how did you have coaches that said, don't do it, do it, different encouragements. I, to me, like, the analysts don't do anything. Like, we just say, like, hey, this is a good idea. But until someone says, hey, run this play, or JJ, whenever you are open, shoot it no matter what, nothing really happens on the floor. So I'm actually curious. Yeah how you've felt that transformation. Yeah, I actually like to tell this story. Um, I told it the other day, so if you've heard this story before, I apologize, but um, when I was at Duke, this was when Peja was on the Kings, 
and Peja was one of the first guys that I saw shoot transition threes. And so Coach K would show me film. He really empowered me to do that as well. My very first practice, my rookie year in training camp, we're running a three-on-two, two-on-one drill. <clears throat> me and Carlos Arroyo were the two defenders. He gets the rebound. We're going back. I run to the three-point line on the right wing. He kicks it to me. I pull up. Nothing but net. Brian Hill blows the whistle. <laughs> and he Perfect. says, we're, we're, we're running for fucking layups. Sorry, excuse my language. <laughs> and I said, that is my fucking layup. Yes. You know? Did you yes. actually say that? You didn't say that. On the inside? No, On the inside? You said that to Brian Hill. <laughs> no, I didn't say it to Brian Hill. Okay. <laughs> I was like, there's no way. <laughs> no, but that became a thing for the rest you of my career. Yeah. For the rest of my career, I would, I would, this is, I would legitimately do this. Uh, my buddies, you know, my, my teammates or whatever, when I hit a transition three in, in front of the bench, I would turn to them and they'd say, that's a fucking layup. You know, that, that became a thing. But to, to Daryl's question about sort of the evolution during my career, I was fortunate that I got to play for Stan uh, my second year through my sixth year. And really, that was sort of one of the evolutionary jumps, I think, in the NBA. I think the first one was really the Suns, even though if you look now, based on pace and three-pointers taken, they would be one of the slowest teams and shoot uh, the least amount of threes in the league. That Magic team was sort of the next jump, and then Steph and Daryl's Rockets were the, the third iteration of that jump. Um, but how we generated threes was very different on the Magic than how James Harden generates threes, or how Steph Curry generates threes, or how Klay Thompson generates three. So I think that, to me, has been the biggest evolution, is yes, we've seen this gradual uptick in three-point shooting, but how those threes are generated has been the biggest change. And by generated, I mean the percentage of shots that are taken off the dribble, step-back threes like James Harden, Luka Doncic, um, whereas with the Magic, a lot of those threes were created by playing four out, one in with Dwight on a roll, and then just playing ball movement till we hit a spot up three. We're talking over there to the second most three-pointers of all time in the WNBA over there, Sue Bird. You play this long. <laughs> you better get up there. Uh, how has the three-point shot changed over your career in the W? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, I'm listening to you guys talk. When I was in college, so it's, you know, I got to college in 1998, so 98 to 2002, we were trained in transition. There was two acceptable shots, a three-pointer or a layup. That was it. And then I was allowed to shoot pull-ups. That was kind of, and Diana was allowed to shoot pull-ups. Like there were certain people that if they were open, didn't matter where you were. But the rest of the team, threes and layups, that was it. So when I got to the WNBA, in full disclosure, there wasn't really a lot of conversation around it. It wasn't, there wasn't, there, by the way, we were still doing the high school line. When I first got to the, that's also why I'm high on that list. Nineteen <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was still, so it was still the high school line. A year or two later, pushed back to the international line what was the international line, now we're at the new international line. Um, but yeah, there wasn't a lot of conversation around it. It really wasn't until I would say four or five, probably because of you, four or five years ago where WNBA teams you started to notice were, were really focused on it. And then for me personally, in 2018 when we won, that was a team where we were built around three-point shooting. Some of it had to do, and I've mentioned this before at this conference, with Jenny Busek, She's now an assistant with the Pacers. She was our head coach. She put an emphasis on that. 
and we were able to start drafting people. And it became like, are they good on defense or are they good three-point shooters? We were always taking yep. the three-point shooting. And we like led the league and we did well. We ended up winning and it was all revolved around that. And now I'm just a huge believer in it. It's not that I've bought in completely, but like you need it. It changes everything. I've always advocated just from the numbers side that like Steph Curry should take 23 pointers a game because of how efficient he is. But as a guard who takes a bunch of three pointers, is that exhausting more than like analytics or analysts like myself who are just like looking at the math and the spreadsheet says Steph could shoot 20 of these and it'd be better for his team. Is it exhausting in ways for Dame Lillard yourself and Steph to just shoot that many threes in a game? I mean, like, I'm probably, like, we're probably more similar. Like, I'm not really shooting. I'm not, like, doing step backs. <laughs> yeah. Like, not my, my bag. I'm sure it's exhausting for them. <laughs> I would imagine it would be very exhausting. For me, my stuff comes in, like, the flow of the offense. I'm able to, like, they can't leave me, right? So I'm able to just spread the defense, let the other players do their thing, and then I'm there to, to punish if needed. So, um, no, it hasn't been exhausting for me. <laughs> but is a step back three that much harder than chasing a guy around a screen? Yeah, the way you me. played must have been... Yeah. Least as tiring as taking step back threes, you run all around like yeah. five times and get one shot. No, I, yeah, I had to be in pretty good shape to, to do what I do. Um, <laughs> I, Tom, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and I'll share a brief story. My, um, my last year in Philly, our analytics guy came to me, and I, the previous season I had shot low, fif, low 50, 51%, 52% on mid-range pull-ups, which I had done for now like six or seven years. Um, and he, and I think the previous year I'd shot 42% on threes. And he said to me, you know, if you do sidestep threes and, and take the mid-range pull-up out of your game, here's what you would average. Here's what your points per shot would be, which is great on paper. But you get in a game and all of a sudden you're taking harder threes. So I think there's a point of diminishing return. Like I think about a basketball possession in this way. How do you generate a good shot. And I watch some teams play that have a really strong emphasis on three-point shooting. And guy gets run off the line, he dribbles in the paint, the layup's not there, he kicks it. Guy gets run off the line, dribbles in the paint, layup's not there. All of a sudden it gets down to two, three on the shot clock and you're taking a bad shot. Sometimes in a possession, the best shot is that pull-up jumper. Now, a lot of guys don't practice that pull-up jumper anymore because a lot of teams are telling them what they told me. I shot 39% that last year in Philly. It was like my first time, my only time in my last, I think, five or six years that I shot under 40%. But like how tough were the sidestep threes? They're, they're way harder. Oh, but like how hard? Like what were you shooting on? <laughs> I, I don't know the exact percentage. But, but, but to, to Steph's point, like for Steph to generate, and Steph makes shots that no one else can make. But for Steph to generate either on the ball or in movement off the ball a three-pointer, it requires so much for him to generate a good shot. And it's just, that's hard to do 20 times. It's amazing that he does it 15 times. Yeah. <laughs> and I, don't, I don't realize because I'm not Steph, but I, I, like, look, I look at the spreadsheet, I'm like, when? I mean, he shoots at such a high percentage, and why is he taking these two-pointers or long twos or whatever? But it... it it reinforces the point that the game is not a spreadsheet and analytics, like even though the numbers say do this, it's a lot harder to execute in the game. And I'm wondering like in 25 years, is there something in the box score that's gonna be 110% higher than it is right now? Steals. Steals. <laughs> well, you, you're not accepting my answer. You're like <laughs> looking at me like, what are we gonna like? That what? is in the box score. Yeah. It can go up 110%. Yeah. 
Why, why do you say steals? Uh, more, there'll be more aggressive defenses. Yeah. Oh, okay. better, uh, better coaching or just the athletes? Shift and approach, yeah. Offensive rebounds probably won't be 110, but that'll be up. I was thinking rebounds. Yeah. Re offensive rebounds. More long distance shots. Offensive rebounds will be up. Steals will be up. Yeah. When you look at the future also, like the three-point line, a lot more three-pointers, but I advocated for a four-point line because uh, I think we want to see the best athletes at shooting the basketball do things in ways that raises the bars. Like Steph Curry, when he – I mean, the clip of him at pregame just shooting – one step further back and one step further back all the way to the half court and doing it and making every shot. Part of the reason why that was amazing is not just that he shot 100%, is part of it is just he was shooting from so far away. How do we incentivize those skills um, and rewarding that? Is a four-point shot, four-point line, like let's call it 32 feet away from the basket. What do you think that would do to the NBA game? We're keeping the three-point shot where it is and then adding a four-point line. JJ? I think the people that complain about today's NBA <laughs> would uh, yell even louder into the microphone. The well, former um, players in the media would be fine with it. <laughs> yeah, embrace right. it. You're screwing up the media, by the way. You, you have intelligent conversations I, uh, on the air, and you're messing up the whole game, JJ. I appreciate that, Darren. <laughs> Here, here's, here's my thought on the four-point line. So I, I don't like the idea of it. I also... I also think that, that there's limitations physically for nearly every basketball player. And the three guys that come to mind that would probably do well with the three-point line, two of them shoot a push shot on the way up because they're smaller and they have to. And the third shoots a palm ball, which is not taught. You're not taught to shoot using your palm. You're, shot, you're taught to shoot using your fingertips. So there's three rarities there of guys, and I'm talking about Trey Young, Steph, and Dame, like there's three rarities there of guys shooting the ball. Like that's not how shooting is taught. How shooting is taught, it's very actually difficult if you're shooting a jump shot and releasing at the top and putting arc on it. It's very difficult physically. And you can train all you want, but there's limitations to shooting 40 foot. But isn't that what they said when the three-point line was introduced? Is it just like, that's too far away, that's gonna hurt the game? I, I wasn't around then. I was three. <laughs> just, I'll, I'll just was say three. this, like there's a whole generation of kids growing up now watching those guys that you're just yeah. talking about. And I don't actually think we've seen the real, I think I said this on a panel a few years ago here, like I, I don't think we've really seen the impact of the three-point revolution yet because the generation of people who are watching the best players doing this now hasn't hit us yet. It's just starting to get to high school and college now. And so, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more good shooters in the future. I'm pretty confident of that. Doesn't that empower the smaller guards or guards in today's NBA? Like the, the long-distance three-pointer. Well, the three-point line should be farther back. And then, so your four-point line should be way, I was way farther back. Just one. If you want to call it a four or a three, just move one back, have one. Maybe call it four-point. What do you do with the corners? That's the problem. Right? Oh, yeah. We'll just, just, cut just expand the court. You lose revenue, oh, Daryl. Yeah, you know owners are Find never Find me an owner who that. wants to do that. But you don't. <laughs> Wait, the Henry Abbott School of Thought is that there's more, by, by expanding the court, there's more courtside seats. So then you could up, you get more courtside seats that way. 
Yeah. Here's, here's, here's a question I have for you, Tom. Strengths. Or get rid of a whole row and add two in either corner. I don't think you actually end up with more. Yeah. Like you can't charge enough for those four. Why don't we make the court smaller then, so we can fit more seats in? Yeah. Like I don't understand. <laughs> like, why can't we expand it? Constraints drive price, which drive revenue. So I, like, the whole notion that expanding the court will make less money is not, not straightforward. Um, does does, the fact that there's not a three point or not a four point line make it any less amazing when we watch these guys make deep three-pointers. I just feel bad for like Jamal Crawford. Like if we had a four-point line, Jamal would be averaging 30 points a game. Because he had that range. <laughs> Gilbert didn't, Arenas. Didn't, or, uh, didn't, I don't think he had that range. He made a lot of end of quarter shots because he was very willing to take them. Yeah. <laughs> he had that Marcus Smart mentality. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I watched Jamal shoot. Uh, he had three-point range and I, I don't think if you put it back 10 feet that he would have made a difference in his career. Do we worry about kids these days taking those shots and what that's doing for the development of basketball? I mean, you pointed at me. I, I don't worry about that. I think, I mean, I think it's, I think it's exciting that the floor is more spread, but I'm not sure we need to be incentivizing it so strongly as to add a four point shot. I, I would, I mean, you can market test that and see what the people buying the product think about it. Um, I just, I, I, I'm excited to see another generation of great shooters. Everybody thinks these shooters are fun to watch right now. And so why shouldn't we have more of them? Are there any players who play, Sue, that even bothered you? You're just like, that's not basketball, how they play. Of course. Really? Oh, name. Of course. No, we're not naming names. What? People tweet. There's all kinds of <laughs> tweeters out there. That's the whole point. Yeah, there's people that manipulate. Wait, wait, that you're, are you're not worried about people getting in trouble for tweeting something? <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, big silence. No. Yeah. Wow. But there are, there are some yeah. players you, you, you... They know how to manipulate things. It's what more, that? that's more so, by, that? by that I more so mean like the refereeing. Oh. They know how to... I personally feel that the WNBA, because we're, we're a little bit of a stepping stone. Like every time I turn on an NBA game, I'm like, oh. There's two WNBA refs out there. What do you know? They got plucked. Oh, That's kind they? of like the, yeah, like Wait, the You're telling me system. they use you as a farm system? What do you know? Oh my God. Yeah, who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> so our referees are constantly learning. Our, it's not that they're bad, like genuinely. It's not that they're bad. They're just, there's always a new crop and they're always learning the league, which is a big part of refing. It's knowing players, knowing the rules well, that kind of thing. So I feel like there are, our, but our players stay the same. The rules don't change, our players stay the same, and there's certain ones that just know how to manipulate that. Which, not saying that you are saying bad things about them manipulating, but which players do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually curious. Like, yeah, right? um, I, what are you trying to do to me here, Daryl? <laughs> I'm trying to understand. I, I think I have one year left, just let me have it in peace. <laughs> oh, next year. Just, yeah, next, next year I'll come back and I'll name, book comes I'll name out. names. The book comes I'm out. I'm naming names, I'm naming names. I, 25 I, years from now though, officiating is gonna be really different. I think. How so? Well, a lot of these things will happen automatically. There won't be people making a bunch of the calls that get made now. Not will, all will there be referees? Yeah, absolutely. One, one referee on the floor? No, I think those, I mean, it, I mean, maybe there are different perspectives on this, but I, I think so many of the calls in our game are really subjective that you're going to need to keep having human refs, but not the ones where it's like, did the ball hit the line or not? We should just know that. Goal tending. Goal tending, that one. Like, how are we not doing five-second calls, like ball out of bounds, that that's not automated already? 
There should be a timer and a buzzer. Well, I have five-second calls. You have 24 seconds, so you got to, like, they should just start the clock and get the ball in. Like, I hate backcourt violations. Those are dumb. Like, you have to shoot in 24 seconds. Daryl's about offense. What? No, I oh. Yeah, you got this one bit of time. Yeah, you just got to shoot in 24. Like, you're not going to stay in the backcourt. Like, why do we need this eight-second call? <laughs> like, I think that was invented before they, clearly, when the peach basket was up. It makes no sense. So. Yeah, we have a lot of anachronist rules that I want to get rid of. So in 25 years, 2047, Mike, what is going to be the biggest issue you think that the basketball world is going to face? 2047? Um, I think the biggest issue that we'll face is going to be people altering their bodies in different ways. I think we've seen the start of it with um, steroid issues there's this discussion around um, transgender stuff. There's more on that in the panel tomorrow. But I think these discussions will seem tame uh, relative to the ones that will happen in the future when it's very common for people to do things, sometimes from a very young age, sometimes prior to birth, to alter the way their bodies work. And so I don't, I don't know if we're talking about implants or it's like a Black Mirror episode. Like, yeah, this is yeah, like Gattaca. Gattaca. What do we? No, but yeah. So like, at what point? You know, I mean, we're, we're worried about. There's always going to be more steroids, but it's going to become more and more common for people to do sort of different biological things to yourself. Yeah. What if? What if you? What if you make someone really, really tall through some mechanism in the future, gene manipulation or whatever? Is that legal? I, you know, we'll we'll be worried about who's playing. That's what I think. But that's a ways off. I don't know, 25 like years. Something I thought, it's kind of in the same breath, but not really. As an older athlete, I'm like, wow, if what I was doing now, and then I'm, of course we've got the Tom Brady's, LeBron. If what I was doing now, I was doing at 15, 16, it's like, would I, would I be able to play to 46, 47? Obviously, I know it's this way in the NBA, it's this way in the, like, youth kind of rules in a lot of ways. There's like this, a youthfulness, it kind of can, it, it, it takes over at different points. But what if you're 40 and you're youthful? So you have the experience and you've kept your youth. Yeah, we that, make it good at slowing aging. The sure. makeup of all these leagues. That's something that I think, I, th I always joke now that I'm 40, I'm like, oh, 40 is the new 30. But I'm kind of like, I mean, if this keeps going and all of a sudden I'm 45, 46, 47, and I'm still able to play, but I have this experience, you would, I feel like that player is the perfect player. In a year, we just developed a bunch of mRNA vectors to get people's cells to make a protein. Like, who knows yeah. what proteins we'll be training people's cells to make? That's serious. But like Tommy John surgery, same thing. Is just like, sure. that's accepted. Right. LASIK surgery right. So is accepted. But there's going to be a debate about each one of these things that happens, I think. I don't know. You're asking me what's going to happen in 25 years. Yeah. Well, I'm saying it's already beginning. You're, you're right. It's already beginning. JJ, would you, uh, if you found out that there is an ethical way to get, you know, five inches taller, in high school, <laughs> and suddenly you're Dirk Nowitzki out here. I, I, I never wanted to be taller. I just wanted to not have alligator arms. That's really, truthfully. I've heard that helps shooting, like though. If there was a pill that I could take that would give me a better wingspan, I would take it. I've been told that helps shooting, though. Does that actually help shooting, you think? Short arms? Yeah. I don't know. I think hands do. I think smaller I think hands smaller are hands. better. I have normal sized hands. I can grip a ball, but I don't have shack hands, you know? I, when I shoot with my kids, I always think that, because they use a smaller ball, 
and I'm like, this feels this what really Shaq weird. I yeah. do that when I stand on bleachers, you know, yeah. and you're kind of by the rim. I'm like, oh, this is what Shaq feels like? No wonder. <laughs> like, no wonder he misses. It's a line drive. <laughs> Gotta be. That's why underhand is yeah, it's better. Bring yeah. it back. So in 25 years ago, of the top 50 scores in 1997, only four were born outside the United States. And today that number is 13 in the top 50 scores in the NBA. Joel Embiid, born in Cameroon. Where do you think the next wave of NBA players, underrated place that they're going to come from in 25 years? Obvious answer is the Asia countries. I know Yao Ming's done a lot to boost Chinese basketball, and India doesn't have a similar development that I'm aware of. I mean, they're obviously the world's more global, but I think if you if you just get courts everywhere, that's what Yao Ming's initiative is. Well, with the NBA, I should say, to get more courts in China. Yeah, they were building 10,000 courts in India too, the league. Okay, so there you go. Well, India as well, thank you. I don't know what's happening now. And, and, you know, it'll take time, and it might be 25 years, but there will be, you know, just like U.S. soccer, it's been, it'll be for, you know, my whole life, U.S. soccer's coming. Well, it's finally here. Like, I just had a panel. We, you know, people think we have good U.S. soccer players. It, it took till I was 50. So, yeah. Did you feel that, J.J., at all, as the international growing of the NBA game over your career? Uh, truthfully, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. Um, I mean, I grew up watching Michael Jordan, and I understand the impact that the 92 Dream Team had and that wave of European players that came over in the 90s and, and really set the table. Again, like in anything we talk about, um, we talk about this in society all the time, you need representation. And we're seeing more and more countries and places across the globe being represented in the NBA. And once you see representation, then it gives you, it gives you hope and it gives you something to aspire to. And so, I, I don't know where it will come from, but um, I think it will, the trend will continue. And I've, I've noticed this, I'm not gonna name anybody, but the, the guys that come over have a very different mindset than American players. And I am concerned, and this is gonna make me sound 55, not 37, but I am concerned a little bit about youth basketball in America, and we've all watched <clears throat> highlights online, and I, I worry if the game is being taught correctly. The skills are being taught. The guys coming into the NBA and, and entering college as freshmen have way more skill than my generation have ha had. I worry about do they know how to play basketball? Are they playing to win, or are they playing for 1.2 million Instagram followers? Mm -hmm. I talked with Luca about this a ton when I was his teammate in Dallas. There's a, different, there's a different mindset in different cultures. His is one, I don't know all the cultures, but there's a different mindset around that, and I worry about that in America, and what impact 10, 20 years, in 10, 20 years, that's gonna have on the development of basketball players here. Yeah, like, I also think about how, where the players are gonna come from, like what happens to college sports. Like Duke, tomorrow is yeah. Coach K's last game against Carolina at Cameron Indoor. Like, are we ever gonna see a Coach K in college hoops again? 
It's a great question. Are we going to see college hoops in 10 years? What form is this going to take with NIL, transfer portals, G League Ignite, Overtime Elite? I'm sure there's going to be many more things that pop up like Overtime Elite. Um, so, you know, unless, and I know we talked about this backstage and you're going to take the opposite approach as me, but, you know, unless you're going to incentivize people to go to college and unless you're going to treat them like men and, and treat them like professionals, you know, I, if I was coming out and I had an opportunity to go make whatever, I probably would take that opportunity. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd take a contrary approach. I mean, I think the big worry for, for college basketball is the next Supreme Court case. This one sort of said NILs should probably be legal and the antitrust laws apply, but the plaintiffs in this case um, that just happened last year said we're not challenging the NCAA rule that athletes can't be directly paid by the universities. I think there's another case coming where someone will challenge that. And then what does that And then you can all watch the women's tournament. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be there. I, you know, I just don't know what that, does that world become looking like another professional league? What does it look like? I don't, I don't know. Does it, does it make it easier for you as a GM or president of basketball operations, excuse me, Daryl, uh, the idea of coming out of college, watching four years of college versus like watching G League Ignite or watching LaMelo Ball in Australia? Like, do you have a preference of where these prospects are coming out of? to get them ready for the NBA? I think at this point it's slightly better. We want them coming through higher variance paths, so ones that are less predictable is probably good for us in that. What do you mean? We're picking later. So we, we, want, we want more players that are good to this fall. Is the, this is the Sixers-centric view. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in 25 years, I'm, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Does that make sense what I'm saying? College is like, we sort of know, it's like not even basketball really, but, but it's, uh, but anyone who watches college, it's like so bad. It's, it's like, it's, you have to like map your brain to what they're doing. It's a doing. different form of basketball, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, but it should almost have a different bad name. Bad form. Yeah, <laughs> bad form. Yeah, bad, right, you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't, yeah. It's hard to watch. Yeah. When people, I people think, tell I me think that they, they love watching college basketball, I'm like, are you a masochist? They love like, yeah. <laughs> you go it's to all, It's good environments, like it's great to watch. It's only funny if you throw it into this false crucible of one and done and it's March. Otherwise, otherwise it's torture. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's absolute torture. <laughs> so, what we know really well, we have years of data of how these players go into these programs and how they come out and how they look in the NBA. So it's become a little less variance. I think our product is better when we get the best players and having higher variance introduces some worse players into the mix. So I, I, yeah, but I want that. I, well, you want that because you think you're picking later. So yeah. do you, you have the best defense in the league. You want, you want, you gave we're away your We're talking about picks? 25 years from now. I don't okay. know what we're gonna have 25 right. years That's from true. now. Hopefully you're still right. <laughs> yeah. Do we think there's gonna be a draft in 25 years? I mean, from a women's basketball standpoint, more so on what we're just talking about, what's interesting is I'm starting to see, so our college game is more popular. And what happens is I think people watch it, even WNBA GMs, and they watch and they, okay, so you're basically saying that what you like about, if I heard this correctly, what you like about college, it's like it's a known system, you kind of understand what it is, so when a player goes through it, you can kind of gauge, like you understand. Mm -hmm. 
So ours, because it's kind of backwards in this way, I think people have a hard time judging players because the competition is like so much worse. Mm. So if a player who plays for school, you know, a power five school plays against a mid-major and has 30 and 20, that is meaningless. Mm. But people get caught up in it. They think like, oh, and a GM then gets pressured to maybe draft this player because it's like, oh, well, the numbers, but the numbers don't matter. So we're in this weird, we're trying to figure out what that system is that we can trust. Like what, what part of college basketball can you trust? And my take is, I think what WNBA GMs need to start doing, and because I do think there'll, be, there'll still be drafts, what they need to start doing is really get in the weeds of evaluating the talent and not just like evaluating, I don't know, just whoever had the highest you know, point average in a, cer a certain season. Like actually seeing like, oh, what is that player gonna do in four or five years? Not just, are they good right now? If that makes sense. I think like WNBA for a long time, it's just who can we draft that helps us right now? And the shift needs to go to, I think more so an NBA model of like, what does this look like in 10 years? We haven't done that yet. And it's, it's a trap for a lot of GMs. There'll be more drafts because it's sellable. So like the free agency is like, I mean, when a, when a high Anything school player that picks their team, like yeah. they're going to play in college and commit yeah. to, that's a huge event. It's entertainment. I, so they'll I, come up with other ways to sell the entry pe into the People league. who own NBA teams will want there to still be drafts. Of course they do. So they're still going to be drafts. <laughs> <laughs> Unless your Supreme Court comes in or something. No, so it's, the, the idea of a draft is collectively bargained, so it's yeah. totally legal. Yeah. Draft is fine. JJ, on a recent pod with Jason Tatum, you talked about, you know, that whole basketball IQ topic about kids these days, right? You're the old man in the three on that conversation, right? It's just like, you know, Draymond and you were talking about how younger players don't seem to have the same basketball IQ. They have all the ability and the skills, but in terms of actual basketball, I don't know, intelligence, they lack. And Jason Tatum told a story about how Chris Paul taught him about the three for two. Three for two. Yeah. And basically saying, like, I didn't realize how smart some of these guys were until Chris Paul was like, oh, three for two. There's a two for one, but really should be taking a three for two at 105, and then, then you get two shots back, and it's just a smarter play. I'm curious, on that note, what is something that isn't about, like, shot selection, analytics that helped you in your game that made you smarter as a basketball player that isn't just like, oh, take more threes, or it's something that you innovated in your game that made you more effective that in the same way that Jason Tame didn't even know that there was a three for two. Um, yeah, I'm gonna answer the question without answering your question, actually. Yes. So. He's so good at the media already. No, I, I thought he was gonna say flopping. It's a good question. Yeah. It's a really good question. <laughs> but it, I think it's more, I wanted, there's a point I wanted to make at some point, and I'm gonna take the opportunity to make the point now, and that's just. Um, Politics. He's good at this. He's good. I, I love this game so much. I love basketball. And what I really love about it is I, I truly believe that it's the ultimate team sport. And baseball is, a, is an individual sport masquerading as a yes. team sport. Football, every player on any given play has a very specific task to execute, and if you don't execute that task, it sticks out like a sore th thumb and you lose your job. Basketball requires so much interpersonal co cooperation, and it's very evident when that cooperation doesn't exist. And so for me, if I'm thinking about my own career, or if I'm thinking about 
the guys in the league that I really admire or that I'm a fan of or that I think to myself, how did they, how did they miss on this guy? Why was this guy undrafted? How did this guy drop to 35? Like the same traits always come up. They're intelligent, they work hard, they're extremely competitive, and there's a level of emotional intelligence to them. And we are missing the boat over and over on this because we do get caught up in projections and wingspan. If I go to any locker room and spend three days around a team, I can be around 10 young guys. I did this later in my career. I can be around 10 young guys. I know which guys are gonna have 10 and 15 year careers. Just or being reading, around them. Just reading them, yeah. Let me watch this guy work after practice. Let me see how he interacts with his teammates. Let me see how he takes coaching. Let me see if he's paying attention in film. And look, I'm not knocking you guys, by the way. I'm just saying this is league-wide. This is how, if there's a red flag on a guy, because every team does research, if there's a red flag on a guy, it's, it's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. I'm not going to name names. I can list 10 players who have been taken in a lottery over the last few years that had red flags about these issues. Those guys aren't good basketball players. They're not good basketball players. Yes, they are skilled. They are not good basketball players because it requires more. It requires more. It requires those traits. That's great. Will, will, will we be better at identifying those traits in 25 years? If you hire me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, Why are we not getting him to name names? I tried. Yeah, I tried. No, actually, I, there's somebody, somebody no. sent me a study on this. So it's interesting. Somebody it's sent me a study on this about competitiveness and measuring this, these sort of traits. Mm -hmm. And like, what I think it's, it's hard, because you know, we can do this in a study, but real world. Guy gets his bag. What's his next year look like of work? Mm -hmm. Is he shortcutting? Guy gets his bag. Does he stop being a good teammate? You, it's really, really hard to predict those things. It's really hard to predict those things. They're also 19 years old. So if you remember yourself at 19, we're trying to figure out who they are, and they don't even know who they are themselves. Yeah. So, yes, another challenge. Yeah, so. 100%. 100%. <laughs> no, I'm, there, I'm, I, yeah. I'm admitting that there are major challenges in this, but I knew at 19 that I was a competitive fuck and a total dick. <laughs> Everyone else knew that, too. Yeah. <laughs> you went to Duke. Sue, <laughs> <laughs> so to put it's it true. bluntly, are players getting dumber do you, over your career? <laughs> are players getting dumber? Um. I mean, yeah, that's one way of putting it. I totally agree with JJ. I actually just talked about this recently. Um, there's an obsession with the highlight, an obsession with social media and getting your highlights on there, and there's not an obsession with learning how to play with others, like simply put. And it's the combination of those two things. That's what, like, yes, you have to be skilled and you have to work on your craft and all that stuff, absolutely. But if you can't play in the framework of a team, like, what are you, what are you doing? And so many times, you know, there's been WNBA players that have come in as younger players where I probably caught something on social media of them working out and you're like, damn, like I can't do that. Like the moves and the step backs and the whole thing, it's like, whoa. And then they get in the league and they can't do any of that shit either when, the game, <laughs> when you're in the game. That and just like to me, a little bit of a tangent, but like you're never gonna get that volume. Yeah. 
And that, that to me, like, when, if I had to put my GM hat on, that's something that I always look at when I'm watching these college players. I'm like, you're not going to get 25 shots. So what are you doing with seven? You know, are you able to create for others? Are you like, how, how are you helping your team in, in all those other ways? Because there's literally one person a team and their names are right. Like Kevin Durant. <laughs> yeah. So unless you're Kevin Durant, unless you're Brianna Stewart, you have to be able to help your team in other ways. So are they getting actually dumber? No, they're not. They're just not being taught. It's not an emphasis. It's not a priority for them because they're not being rewarded. And just to be clear, the stuff you're talking about is not mutually exclusive with the stuff JJ was just talking about. I mean, like, we still wanted to draft you. Well, J can I tell a story about JJ? Like, you don't even, I just, oh, somebody just told me. It's, not, it's funny. It's a is good it a true story? Yeah, it's a true story. <laughs> 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 well, he was asking about, like, No IQ one cares if it's true. So. <laughs> <laughs> he just asked you about IQ and... Have you ever added something to your games? Obviously, it's more statistically. So I, I've recently been working out with someone that JJ has worked out in the past. And we were He's just, so like, nervous chatting. right now, by the no, way. No, 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 not bad. <laughs> I promise. All right. So he goes, I don't even know what we were talking about, but like one thing led to another, and he was like, oh, like something JJ would started doing in his workouts would, he would practice what it would be like if he got fouled. So there are times in basketball where like maybe you drive, maybe you're pulling up, and somebody like hits your arm in a way I have to demonstrate this, this is really awful. Where you're literally gonna end up looking like this. Cause you drove, you're gonna go pull up and you end up looking like this, trying to get the shot off. Yeah. Right? And exactly trying to make right. it. Yeah. And Tim, this, his name is Tim. And Tim was like, yeah, so JJ by himself <laughs> would practice these shots. So he would drive or whatever workout you're doing and you would pretend to get hit and try to finish the shots. And I was like, Flopping, right? oh, that's really smart. <laughs> I was like, that's really smart. You could have named names when you said those manipulators. Yeah, there you just is. said. <laughs> but I was like, that's really smart. I tried to point this out. And then he said, well, the funny part was, yeah. And then he would, the, the times he'd make it, he'd walk off, like staring at the guy who fouled him, like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but think. I was like, that's actually, that, you know, doing things outside of the box like yeah. that. That's going to be in 25 years. People are going to start doing stuff like focusing on that. that I've always had, a, I've always had a wild imagination. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> We were cracking up though. <laughs> That's funny. He demonstrated it. I was dying. <laughs> so good. We need more demonstrations on our panel. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think that would add an element for next year. Work on that. Note that, MIT students. Sue Bird demonstrates. <laughs> That's a great example, by the way. I told Sue, and um, I think I told you this too before we were back there. I've always been a visual person, so for 30 years I would fall asleep, whether it was a nap or you know, NBA game day, game day naps are sacred, or before bed I'd, I'd always fall asleep and I'd be visualizing moves and shots, and now I just think about my golf swing and the ball flight. That's all I think about now. It's a totally different thing the last six months. Uh, we got a question from the audience here. Would the NBA ever consider a full game mic'd up viewing option instead of traditional broadcasting? Yes. Like every player mic'd? Is that what that means? Like coaches mic'd, everything? Everything's mic'd. Yeah. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. The TBT does some of that, yeah. Basketball tournament. And, yeah, I mean. They have, every, they have a bunch, everyone mic'd, I think. Kevin Garnett's not still in the league, so we probably can. <laughs> oh, just be a lot of bleeping. Yeah. Yeah, yeah is there a, seven it's like delay. a seven second delay, seven so second someone delay. Yeah. And a lot of bleeps. A streaming company's gonna have to have that broad yeah. broadcast. Can't be Disney. Yeah, FCC. <laughs> okay. Who of the young talent in the league do you, do you feel possesses the intelligence and off-court traits that will transcend into a long career? 
My Mike and I can't answer. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, Jaw for sure. Jaw has everything. Um, and you know, all those traits I talked about, he has, and I found it really interesting. We were having a conversation with Draymond back in January on uh, the Old Man of the Three, and we asked him about. You know, he's, Draymond is one of the most intelligent players in this era of basketball, and we asked him about guys that he's played against that have the same level of intelligence that he hates going against because he knows it's going to be a chess match. And obviously he mentioned CP and he mentioned Braun. The third guy he mentioned was Ja. And um, I think people get caught up in the highlight reel stuff. But from everything I know about Ja, he's incredibly intelligent, great teammate, uber competitive, works. I think he's a guy that 10 years from now, or ten, you know, yeah, 10 years from now, like. His skill set is going to be very different, and we're going to be like, man, remember young Ja? <laughs> remember what he used to do? And look at his game now? Like, I, I think he's the guy that in 10 years, we're like, wow, what a transformation. Like, I feel like we should be able to, like, evaluate that in the draft. Emotional intelligence or hardworking, like, are we getting better at that, Daryl and Mike? No evidence we are, I don't think. Yeah. I, don't I think some... I think a lot of teams. Do you guys, how, do you guys have a conversation or do you do a test? Like, I obviously do the background. You have a conversation with a prospect, but do you test? Do you do we've, any? Yeah, we've tried lots of things, and I actually think quite a few teams think they're good at it, but aren't. Um, they get fooled. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we've yeah, there's we've tried different tests. We've tried different evaluators. It's very important. Quite, you're do you totally. Do you ever have a player just go to dinner with them? Yes. Yeah. That's like it. draft prospects? Oh, yeah, it's not very player. systematic. We don't like that kind of stuff, but we do it. I feel like one dinner, and I, I feel like similar to you. Give me one if dinner. Danny was always Chipotle. I'm trying to figure out where Brad <laughs> will want to take people. Like a current player. Well, so, so again, there's, there's a lot of the data would say for every, for every very charming person where you feel like you could predict this, there's some less skilled guy who only made it because he has those skills and then also can't make it far enough. But anyway, sorry, Mike. Well, it's just like, I think these things are pretty high variance too. So, you know, even, even, even if you're good at saying who someone is at the time you draft them, people do change on these skills over time. 100%. So it's, 100%. it's, hard. it's really hard. Draft is so hard. It's like provable teams you, aren't good at it. Would you agree with me, though, that if there's a red flag on competitiveness, that, to me, should be the ultimate red flag? I will tell you the one rule in drafting that's 100% true. Whenever you have a rule, it's not right. <laughs> I promise about, you. Wait, no, what no, about that good. rule? Good. No, even that. Yeah, that's oh. the barber rule, yeah. <laughs> no, but, like, even when I was first in the league and my – tried so yeah, hard to like power. find these things like these heuristics that you're like it has to be yeah. but you can find you definitely can find exceptions or if you find if you think you're always right it's because you've applied you you've not rigorously given your opinion prior to them making the league like if you actually went back and ranked all these people on the way in everyone would i'm not saying you i'm just saying everyone would mess it up oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, I would mess a lot of stuff up Sue, what are your thoughts a, on the Commissioner I, Cup? Can I tell a quick oh, story? Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, I have one quick, one last story. Are you going to get back at her? No, I just, <laughs> Sue's, Sue's story about taking a person to dinner. So I, I actually, I, very seriously, I got a DUI 10 days before the draft. It was low point in my life. I'm in jail. You know, they took my shoelaces. It was awful. They 
So no one should have drafted you based on Basically. your, your, your and I had rule. And disc in my back. Yeah, I had a disc in my back. And um, I, uh, I, had to, I couldn't work out. So I, had, I got out of jail, obviously, and uh, Orlando really wanted to, to meet with me because I hadn't worked out for them because I had just done my West Coast trip or West Coast workouts before. And so I went down to Orlando. I met with Brian Hill, Otis Smith, Dave Twardzik, who was the assistant GM at the time. It was a great conversation. It's like a three-hour dinner. It gets to the end. They still haven't asked about the DUI, so I kind of just bring it up. I'm like, I'm gonna, the guys, can we talk about this? Like, you know, I, I'm, I realize how serious this is. And uh, Dave Twardzik said to me, he goes, so, what'd you drink? And I was like, I, was like, I, I don't know. I think I had like five or six drinks. It was so stupid, and then I got behind a wheel. And he said, no, I mean, like, what'd you drink? I don't know, a couple vodka sprites, a couple games of beer pong, and then I shotgunned a beer right before I left. And I'm like, I can't believe I have to admit this <laughs> to a GM. It was two days before the draft, freaking out. I get home and my agent calls me, he's like, they loved you. Dave Georgic <laughs> said you were the most honest player he's talked to. <laughs> so I, again, I, shocking, but there's stuff I guess you can extract from I thought, I'll I thought just let's ask, like, did you win the beer pong we, game? That shows how competitive we're, you are. We're, <laughs> we're, we're in the draft. Win? Oh, no, I, no, no. I was never very good at that. <laughs> we're, it's a similar thing, though. We're in the draft room, and, and Danny says, I think we're going to draft Tony Allen. And Wick, the owner of the team, says, like, isn't that the guy who, who got in a fight with a police officer? And Danny's like, yeah, that's the guy I want. <laughs> <laughs> That happened. <laughs> uh, Sue, you, um, what, what are the panel's thoughts, but I want to start with Sue. The in-season tournament, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on it and Daryl and everybody else? Should the NBA adopt yeah. the in-season tournament? I mean, we won it, so I love it. <laughs> that was a nice little bonus. Um, okay, so for us, what, make, what I really like about it is Yes, the money and the you know, motivation, if you will, but we don't have conferences. So I think the, one of the main reasons for adding this was yes, it's now like an entity that they can you know, go out and sell and hopefully get sponsorship for, which will help our league immensely. But it's also, we now have East and West rivalries because you play, for us, we play um, all the West teams twice, the first time, the first home game, and the first away game, does that make sense? Yes, the first time you play each, they're Commissioner Cup games. And so, and so point is, you get a West and East, and hopefully now we're gonna start some rivalries, and there's gonna be competitiveness in that way. What was fascinating, though, was not a lot of women in the league took it seriously at first. We did. We knew every single time there was a Commissioner, came, commissioner Cup game, we were focused, when, if we won that game, we'd be in the huddle after one, like, yep, two and one in the Commissioner Cup, let's go. And I don't think other people realized it until like a month or two into the season. So now it'll change this year because they saw what happened in the money. And I think people are going to start focusing on it more. Um, but at the same time, I never felt like it took away from any regular season anything. Like it didn't take away. It's only additive in my opinion. We also won the mid-season tournament. First one this year in the G League. <laughs> so congratulations! I'm very proud. Yeah. No, I, you didn't know that. All I'm of so our players got called up because of COVID. We were. Oh, <laughs> see, you. It's everyone in the league is so competitive. You can just make anything up. I mean, you, we all know Chris Paul like would do anything. He competes on every level of everything. So no, I think for sure. Like I said, I said actually seriously on the draft thing. Anything that's sellable. 
we're going to do more of. And obviously, Europe's taking the lead on these mid-season tournaments, and they're they're great. Like, um, and the and it allows the marketing department to come up with creative things of rivalries or city city cups and all these kinds of things. And yeah, they'll feel artificial maybe at the beginning, but then in 25 years, yeah, people are going to be fighting over I these things. It. So, would you like that, JJ, as a player? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I think to Sue's point, if, if you incentivize anything, um, you, can get, you need you need like a, a money incentive or just just beating other teams well, in a tournament you're, or something. If you're, again, if you're if you're structuring it within an 82 game season, I don't think you'd necessarily need to really incentivize it. But if you're adding games, you absolutely would, 100. percent Yeah. Where we've signed up to play 82 games, and you want to add games and take more of our body, yeah, we, you need to incentivize that. Um, I was wrong, by the way, on the play-in. I, I thought it was a terrible idea, and I, I love it. And we're what? you and LeBron. Yeah, I thought it was. A, I mean, I didn't publicly say whoever needs to be fired or whatever he said, but um, <laughs> I just didn't. I didn't. Evidence I didn't like that. What I, my issue with it was. Still employed. There's there's certain <laughs> years. My issue with it was there's certain years where, um, and we may see this in the Eastern Conference this year, where you know a team goes 48 and 34 and gets the seventh seed, and I, I don't necessarily think we should make them go earn, I, they earn their playoff. So I, if there was a way to cut it off based on like a certain winning percentage or a certain record, I think that's a better structure. But the, 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 um, the play-in thing itself has been amazing. It's exciting basketball. It gives the teams that got a one or two seed an extended break. And really, it, it, it's hard now if you're trying to tank, to really tank, because they it somewhat de-incentivized the lottery. And now if you're sitting there in 11th place, you can't, you can't, you can tank. There's ways to do it, but you can't really go all in. That's a, that's a hard sell to your fans when you're sitting, you know, 64 games into the season, you're only two games back of that 10 spot. Probably change the transaction market some too. There's more teams 100%, that are, that are yeah, that's a great still, point. still trying to, you know, improve For it. some teams, it's their only goal is to make the top 10. I won't comment on that. <laughs> I, we might be thinking of some similar teams. <laughs> uh, fan question here. The, two, the playoffs was a war of attrition with many starts succumbing to injuries. I like this topic. Okay. Do you expect the NBA to shorten the regular season over the next 25 years to prevent this from happening again? Daryl, you uh, got in some hot water about this. What, 58 games? You're advocating for a 58-game game season, one home, one away. Oh, we have Do you retract your statement? Do you double down shortening the season? I think we need to hear from Sue Bird. <laughs> I'm not sure I have an opinion on this. I don't really, to me, it's like it's going to come down to financials now. Isn't that why you have 82 games to begin with? So I just don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't care. Well, player bodies, that's the most important thing. Yeah. Is. So we still have 164 games? I guess. Okay. 40s new 30s. <laughs> Players can play. No. Yeah, I think what I, the, the happy medium between the money and the saving of the player's body is probably where I would land. Whatever number that is. I mean, I, 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 this is a topic that like the. There's a financial incentive, right? And so I, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't. It's not something I've ever felt strongly about. I think, um, we. One of the things I like about the NBA is, the best teams win every year. And one of the reasons for that is we have seven game series. Mm -hmm. Not as random. The game itself is not as random, but also we play a really long regular season, and you really get to know by the end of it who the best teams are. Um, so I, I, 
you know, I'm not sure that's good for business. Like more randomness you might like be better that? for business. But there's a purity to it where like you got to really be the best team. You like that because you're at the Celtics and you've won 18 times or how many I, times? I like that because I'm a fan and I like to see the best teams win too. But I, I do think, I think the, le the shorter a season you have, the less that will be the case. So For sure there should be more randomness in the it's, NBA. It's probably better for the product to have more randomness. I think that's probably right. What does leaving the game better for the next generation mean to you, and how do you envision it? What's the question? <laughs> Sue's the active player. I'll let her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, this, this is on my last panel. Um, at this point, currently, just being able to, um, it took me a second to get to this point, but I've in the last couple of years realized my experience has a lot of value in it. Just the things I've seen, what I've, you know, again, experienced. Um, and just being able to use that now while I am still playing, while I am a member of the union and making sure that I speak up, but also educate the younger players because I remember being a younger player. And because I was playing overseas, it was like union calls, what? Why do I have to get on that? And the landscape of women's basketball is changing and being a part of the league in a way where you have ownership of it, that's what changes the business models when you have players that are at the table and like engaged. And so somewhere in that is your answer of all the kind of all the things I, I think about in terms of the legacy. We're running up against the clock here. Um, so thank you everyone for your questions. Thank you to the panel. Uh, the last question before we go is, is LeBron James going to be still playing in 25 years? <laughs> JJ, you got to have a hot Ronnie. take here. <laughs> I'm going to say no. no. <laughs> I, I will, I will say that because our elite players are at such a difference from even the average player, way more than other sports, that I do think the top players are going to play longer and longer and longer. Um, so I would expect lots of, lots of records to be broken, uh, lots of things for the media to talk about. It would be nice for Harden and Embiid, too. Why do you point at me every time you say that? I know, media? JJ's now just... You're the media, media now. You, you're, you got a podcast that's very popular, Old Man and the Three. Awesome. You're on ESPN. Come on. You don't see yourself that way yet. No. A few more hot takes will be there. <laughs> It'll just... Am I really giving takes, though? I, that's why I like your intelligent takes, yeah. Like you're not as quite into the dopamine hits of saying absolutely crazy stuff. It's <laughs> just the tiniest shred of plausibility. So everyone. Takes? All right. No. A couple. A couple. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks, guys. That was fun. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.